Good afternoon and thank you for joining us. My name is Robin Maggio and I'd like to welcome you to our webcast, Creating the Best Learning Environment for Students with ADHD with Dr. Sydney Zentel. Today's webcast is part of CHAD's National Resource Center on ADHD's Ask the Expert series. NRC is funded by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and provides reliable, science-based information about current medical research and ADHD management. It's a pleasure to introduce today's guest expert, Dr. Sydney Zentel. Dr. Zentel is Professor Emeretta of Educational Studies at Purdue University. She's a national and international educational expert in the area of ADHD. Her experiences teaching children include both general and special education, and she has over three decades of experience educating teachers. Dr. Zentel has also been the recipient of grants from the National Institute of Mental Health and from the Office of Special Education. She's the past president of the Division for Research of the Council for Exceptional Children. Again, we're pleased to welcome our guest expert, Dr. Sydney Zentel. I know everybody is really good producing don't rules for children, but these are the dual rules that will be more useful. So Calvin says, I signed up to play baseball. I don't even like baseball that much. I mean, it's fun playing baseball with just new hubs because we get to both catch and do everything all at once, but this will be boring playing it the real way. Hobbs, the stuff Calvin says, do we even know how to play the real way? Calvin says, see? That's another problem. Suppose they make me a halfback. Can I tackle the shortstop or not? The third major characteristic is activity. And the types, motor and motor mouth, both increase central nervous system arousal. Talking increases stimulation to the brain. Note that motor activity per se does not disrupt learning unless the student must expend energy trying to stay still or trying to stay quiet. Also, some children learn to stir up trouble as a source of social stimulation. And as they age, they may provoke others or get into trouble. Remember, these students, especially the young ones, but also the older ones, are attracted to emotional responses. Here is Calvin. He says to his mother, You don't like my snowman? How's it called? Do you? The easiest way to handle excessive activity is through redirection or channeling. This cartoon is a takeoff on this idea. It says, In an effort to emphasize both physical fitness and academics, Westbury High devised aerobic algebra. For individual children, however, you will need to pay attention to see what active tasks they need to do. Some children are talkers, some are readers, some are collectors, some are bossy but potential leaders. Overall, novelty will reduce activity. Novelty is stimulation. It is something that is new. Typically something that is moving remains or stays new. So we have, in addition, science projects, which allow for the discovery of new things, that's cognitive stimulation. And children can do things as simple as observational research at the mall or neighborhood pond. As a high school student, I remember a teacher in biology who assigned us the task of identifying birds and their habitats. So 200 birds identified to provide an A for that particular student. Now that is an active, cognitively stimulating and physically stimulating homework assignment. Social novelty has also a lot of uh, possibilities. Peers are a wonderful way to produce stimulation for these children. And they prefer working in peers. In this list, I'm sure you know that a tutor learns more than the 2T. However, students with ADHD in particular need to be taught how to ask questions and how to guide others. Perhaps it should be scripted in a written keyboard. You may also know 
the children working at tables with other children perform better over time on mathematics, even if they are all at different levels than mine. Our teachers are the strongest source of social stimulation that there is. And if you can get teachers to move around in the classroom, then you can provide a, a very big dose of stimulation for them. However, when they have study teachers in their role as traveling teachers, we find that they travel away from children special needs. You can also get the child by, to be active by requiring movement in the classroom. These can be timed movements, they can be independently decided upon movements, or they can be teacher program movements. We can also, um, we can also uh, require verbal and written activity. Um, with, with a whole class format. So, uh, a choral responding is fast-paced and helps practice correct responding. So, as a teacher, I would say, now, everybody, when I say go, tell me the answer to X, Y, Z. Okay, go. So, everybody would respond. In a written response, which might be on a Miller board or a chalkboard, um, I would say as the teacher, okay, everybody write in your board the calculations to this problem when I say go and hold up for me, only for me to see what you have written. This is a private kind of way for children as a whole to answer so that I as a teacher can monitor who's got it correct and who doesn't without embarrassing the children. And lastly, voting. Okay, class, put up. Um, one, two, or three fingers uh, to for your opinion on this multiple choice question. Now, this is um, or thumbs up and thumbs down, kind of it's a yes no kind of an answer. Uh, so, uh, that is one way again for everybody to have a response. We can also and should require out of the classroom activity. And here's an example again from Calvin. Susie is saying to Calvin, didn't you hear the bell? Recess is over. It's time to go in. Calvin says, I'm not done yet. It takes me more than one recess to wear myself into a state of submission. We can also provide opportunities for cognitive stimulation. Choice. Choice has all sorts of benefits related to an increase of investment in a, in a chosen product. When children make a choice, they're more likely to be persistent in whatever they've chosen. They're more likely to not have oppositional behavior. In fact, is choice is the best way to handle oppositionality. Impulsivity. This is the last major characteristic that often accompanies activity and has both academic and social outcomes. You should know that these are the most difficult behaviors to change or redirect. This is because delay is so punishing for these students, because it requires losing needed stimulation. But the outcomes of failure to delay persist into adulthood if they are not addressed early. So are the social problems of your student due to impulsive responding with peers, or are they due to a failure to take in subtle social cues, that is, a failure to selectively take in information from others about your own behavior. It it's quite important to know which of those two is going on if you have a child who has social difficulties. What can we do with impulsivity, knowing that it's more difficult? Overall, we want to reduce delay and increase the pace. The only thing I would point out to you from this list is that for younger children, 
it's very important for them to learn manners. Direct instruction on manners and reinforcement of the use of manners, such as, excuse me for interrupting, but sorry, but fidgeting really helps me pay attention so children can learn appropriate manners for young children that didn't get them early enough do that for me. And asking students to restate event sequences allows them to review their own behavior in a conflict situation. We don't need to recommend We just need to credit them for a recall because if they hear, by going back over the sequence of events, they will hear for themselves what it was that may have been a problem. Similarly, for older students, these students recognize correct social responses, for example, in a multiple choice format but they fail to independently generate solutions for conflict, maintaining relationships, joining and sharing groups, and especially how to be assertive without aggression. Even studies show that even adults with hyperactivity find it more difficult to be assertive without aggression. These situation-specific skills need to be directly taught what to do or say when joining the group, when handling conflict. For both age groups, punishment is best when having them redo or repeat an event. This is also called correct practice. Otherwise, punishment does not teach the child what to do. It only increases anxiety. So for younger students, in general, here is a list of what can be done. The only things on this list that I might give you a few other hints about is that pipe cleaners or other small toys can be used with a child for a child in a classroom, something that doesn't make noise. Or while listening to a teacher, for example. Writing notes to teachers as well. Writing notes, instead of interrupting the teacher, the child can make a quick little note to ask the teacher later. The only thing else, well, I think that covers it in this particular list. Also, to remember the positive characteristics of these children, which are busyness, that is productivity, energy, creativeness, spontaneity, and being amusing. And I've recently done some research on creativity, and these children are creative, and their skills should be noticed uh, if at all possible, whenever possible. For older students, we want to reward persistence and effort more than accuracy if we want long-term gains for these students. Persistence is essential. And graphs, they're very helpful because children like the visual stimulation and they can gradually increase expectations through the use of graphs. The only other thing on this particular summary slide that I haven't addressed is teach weight a day. This is probably more important for older children a day and idea. An hour for a younger child, but in an emotional situation, if we can get children to just wait a day before responding, that's very helpful when they become adults. Procrastination, you might ask, why do we all procrastinate? We procrastinate because if we do something at the very end, we have such a high level of arousal that we can get it done if it's an unpleasant task. But if we teach children how to break a task down into small parts, make a schedule for each of those due, then each of those can be a place to procrastinate without losing the whole project. So finally, in the last slide, these are some of the references that I've used of my own writings. Um, I'd say the Students with Mild Exceptionalities book has some brief, succinct chapters on ADHD and ADD in terms of characteristics and also in terms of interventions. So. That's it. Do I get Robin back? All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Zintel. That was some really great information. And we will begin our Q&A section shortly. So just as a reminder to all of our participants, you can submit your question using that question box up on the right side of where the slides are. And remember to include some details if you're asking questions about specific behaviors that might be going on so that Dr. Zintel can provide the best answer. So just to start off real quick, we did have somebody ask Dr. Zentel 
of when you're referring to younger versus older children, what are the age ranges you're you're referring to as younger children and older children? Okay, my research has has a, gone from preschool up through uh, college in some cases, but usually uh, that means elementary versus secondary. Elementary age versus high Great, school. Thank you. Right. Thank you. Um, and I think I also saw a couple of questions come in specifically about inattent inattentiveness um, and, 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 and children who exhibit uh, more symptoms of inatten inattention than, than anything else. So could you um, provide some more, I guess, samples specifically about that? I didn't necessarily get a lot of um, detailed questions, but they were they were more about. Um, we had one person who was saying her her daughter was very anxious about failure, um, and using peers didn't really work. Um, so, do you have maybe some other suggestions to help with students showing inattention? Okay, those are really two different questions, Robin. Um, anxious about failure sounds like it's almost related more to a learning disability. My guess. Um, inattention is of two types, as I said. Um, having difficulty at the end of a task when it starts getting too repetitive, uh, they will start losing more arousal and become more difficult. So, so that's the difficulty. And again, the easy answer is shorter tasks and uh, more interesting things, especially towards the end of a task. Did I miss part of that? Because there were two parts to it. Did I miss anything in there, Robin? No, I think I think you covered it all. Um, so really, just doing those shorter time on tests—that's that's probably the number one accommodation or thing you would recommend um, for students who are showing symptoms of inattention. Yes, and letting them choose what particular books to read. Um, you know, the, the books that children with ADHD select are are, are scary. Exciting and uh, fear-producing. <laughs> giving them some choice in some of their projects and their books and things like that, so it should help them sustain attention. But you know, I think I, I've said before that um, if you give them something to do while they're trying to pay attention or listen, for example, on a listening task like a pipe cleaner with their hands. Some, something where they have a movement option at the same time and it's sustaining attention can also help. Okay, great, great. Well, we have another question, a situation where um, this person's son is in the eighth grade and they're saying he's very bright, gets a lot of A's and B's, so you know, pretty good grades, and we actually hear this a lot of the time, but they're having problems with him specifically listening and following instructions. Um, do you have specific thoughts for that? Uh, yeah. Um, he's bright, probably gifted. Giftedness, surprisingly enough, is highly co-occurring with ADHD. So, um, a gifted curriculum, uh, and a gifted curriculum, if you actually look at it, involves a lot of projects. Uh, maybe if this child can be allowed to have some special projects, uh, or maybe the child needs some leadership roles in the classroom. So listening is a pretty boring activity. I don't know if this child uh, possibly has difficulty listening, as in with a verbal learning disability, that's a possibility, but assuming that that isn't the case, then providing more high-level kinds of tasks for him would be good. Following directions? Yeah. Following directions. Remember, children with ADHD have difficulty holding information in mind. It's not really memory. It's really just the time it takes you to hold five numbers in mind while you come up with a calculation. It's a very, very short term number. So if you're following directions and they're all verbal, that's going to be difficult for any child with ADHD, no matter how bright they are. 
In fact, there's a recent study I did with giftedness found that they also have problems with working memory if they're ADHD, but not if they're without ADHD. So if you're going to try to stabilize memory, pictures, directions with pictures, or have the child write little pictures down as you're giving them directions so it cues them as to what to remember. Great, thank you. What about we have a couple of questions about strategies for organization challenges. And so I think we have some that have come in for both at school, in the classroom setting, and as well as with homework. Yeah, organization. Well, another one of those really difficult things to deal with because it involves delay. To organize, you have to stop and say, well, how am I going to organize these things? You know, I mean, there's a lot of different ways I could organize these things. Um, and so probably the most useful way is to start really early with the children and let them organize the laundry, and let them organize the, the kitchen drawer full of silverware, let them organize things early enough that they begin to know how to categorize the various ways of categorizing. When they're older, um, they need to delay while they're thinking of different ways to organize. That again, it's tolerating delay, having something to do. So if there's any way you can convert an organizational task into something that has visual pictures or visual cues, uh, the students will perform a lot better. Um, they've even found that if you, um, in, a, in a language production task, which has to be organized chronologically, typically, when you ask children to write a composition, but if you ask children to draw little pictures uh, of the sequence of the story and then tell the story from the pictures, they do significantly better. So I guess overall organization that can be converted into some kind of visual representation of that task would make it easier for these students. And actually it makes it easier for all students if they're talking from pictures and just talking out of their heads. So unless I knew more Great, thank you. organizational problems with, I, I, you know, that's that's sort of a general thing. Right, right. Okay, well, thank you. Um, we also these suggestions and ideas that you are giving teachers and parents that are with us today are these things that can go in IEPs and Section Five Hundred Four plans. Uh, yes. Okay, thank you. We had a couple of people asking about that. So. Yeah, I mean, you, you, sometimes I've, I've told or suggested to teachers, uh, to parents, that they include citations to my book or somebody's research, uh, that this is a good thing to use. And they've had to do that often. You know, Zental 2013 on page 432 said that this is what needs to be done. <laughs> So, you know, you might need a citation for some of those things. But yes, they are things that should go into those plans. Right. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Um, what about fine motor skills? I think we get this question a lot too. Um, children who understand concepts, but they have difficulty with their handwriting and with actually writing answers down. What are some so, strategies that could be used with that? This is a very common fine motor it is part of the discipline, uh, and, and is expected. Um, so, you know, I, I would start children learning how to type when they're two, <laughs> in order to avoid the difficulties with handwriting. It is hard for them. Um, so, or teaching them to provide verbal responses, um, taped verbal responses that can be translated later. And it's kind of like gifted children, even. They, they have their ideas are coming so fast that they can't even keep up with, with their own ideas and write them down. So they have difficulties as well, just pure gifted, not gifted with ADHD. But children with ADHD do have a fast association of ideas, and keeping up with those ideas that can writing is difficult. Typing is, is, is the only way that I can see to get around having to write. Because practice 
every time a child rewrites something that they have written because it's messy, it's going to get worse. Because practice of repetition is one of the deadly poisons to ADHD. They don't like repetition. It gets more and more boring every time that they do it. So unless you create or establish differences and expectations for different situations. Okay, this is an assignment that I must have in handwriting, and it must be your best handwriting. And so I'm giving you as much time as you need. But this is a situation where it, it doesn't really matter. It's just your own notes. And so you just need to be able to read it. So let's let's look at these two different situations and give me a sample of what your best is and what your everyday is. And then we'll try to see if we can keep those for different situations. And then that's another way to handle it. Great, thank you. What, what about, in your opinion, do you think teachers, would it be helpful or useful for teachers to directly teach executive functioning skills? And then sort of a second part to that, if, do you know of any programs or curriculum that teachers could look into if they're interested in doing that? No. Um, the further away you get from the functional problems of the children, the less likely you are to see benefits. And you would have to, we'd have to start and talk about, okay, let's define what the executive skills are. This is a very popularized notion these days. Um, I would rather have that teacher or, or parent say to me, here is a situation or a task where the child doesn't plan the child doesn't foresee consequences. Uh, this is the setting. This is the situation. Um, what can we do about that? Because executive skills is, 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 a, is not concrete enough to come up with anything that's going to translate to everyday performance or social behavior. Okay? Great. Thank you. Thank you. And just so everyone knows, we have a lot of questions coming in today, so we are trying to get through as many as we can. Um, Dr. Zuntel can see all the questions as well. But um, so we have we do have a couple of situations, a couple of behaviors again that people are asking about. So one is um, oftentimes students are given a second workspace that's put away, you know, away from other students, has some limited stimulation. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Does it help them get their work done? Does it does it not? Sort of, sort of removing that stimulation. That's punishment. Pure and simple punishment for those children. By the way, children with autism love that. That's reinforcement for them. So uh, removing them from simulation is punishment. If you say if. The only, the only kind of stimulation, as I've said, that is difficult for these children is conversations. And I've done several studies with that in the background, but mostly for younger children, because the other children are talking about a party they're going to, or they're talking about the bug that they see that's running across the, the floor. Anybody who's trying to read or write a composition is going to be taken off task by that conversation, because external conversation interferes with internal thought conversation. So background conversations are not helpful. But any other kind of stimulation can act as a, a, a dose of stimulation which the child needs. You can look away out the window for a minute, and then you look back at your task, and you have just been given a dose of stimulation which should allow you to perform better. So I do not believe in timeout from stimulation for children with ADHD unless you're punishing them. And then that doesn't teach them anything. That's my opinion, and that's my research. Thank you. And what about a, maybe a little bit along the same the same lines? Ignoring, I know that sometimes it's it's People are told to ignore the negative impulse and ignore the inappropriate behavior and only praise the good behavior. Um, but I think we, we have a, you know, a parent and parents who are 
saying that their children don't respond to that. They don't respond to not being, you know, told not to do some sort of negative behavior and it really becomes out of control. Um, so any comments on that or recommendations for what could be done instead? Okay. Um, parents and all people feel some need to respond because if you don't respond, there is an assumption that you're condoning a behavior. And that's what we're all coming from. If I don't say anything, the child is going to think that's okay. Okay, but it's also true that what you pay attention to as a parent or a teacher is reinforcing in and of itself. And many children, especially those with ADHD, love emotional stimulation. They will try to get an emotional reaction out of you, and they will work as hard as they can to get an emotional reaction out of you. Oh, that's wonderful. Look, what mom or dad just did. Woo. And I've actually found uh, in some research that yelling at children with ADHD actually increases their aggressive behavior rather than decreases it. So if you're going to use punishment, it needs to be non-emotional, firm, low volume, very, very clear. Um, Ignoring is difficult to use if the child can get your attention. So they will just keep doing something so that they're not getting any emotional reinforcement from you. Yes, you need to give them three times as much positive attention and praise for the things they're doing correctly. And this is very hard to learn. I remember when I first started teaching. And, and I had to practice um, being positive with children and reinforcing all the things I thought that they were doing that was that was good. It, I felt like an idiot because it was so uh, it felt so false. But it worked. It's magic. Praise is magic for these children, and if they don't get enough, they start working for negative attention. So that's a relatively complex answer to that question. Right, right. Okay, well, thank you. Um, what about forgetfulness? Uh, we have a couple of people who are talking about, you know, students remembering to turn in papers, forgetting to bring home assignments, um, even just not remembering to write their name on papers. Um, suggestions or strategies to help with that? Yeah. Those are boring. I remember a presenter once talking about the routines of getting up in the morning for children with ADHD and how with any kind of a routine you do the same thing over and over and over again and it's boring. So he it, it, it made a joke about children starting their pajamas on fire in the morning in order to get through the morning routine. But that was kind of a silly comment. But, um, yes, a lot of these things are boring. Routines, maintaining routines is difficult for these children. It's, it's, uh, it's not just forgetfulness. We say it's 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 the routine nature of those activities. How to make it fun? How to make those things fun? Well, there are a lot of suggestions. Um, and we'd have to pick one of those those problems that you talked about. Putting your name on a paper, giving a magic marker. As soon as you put your name on your paper, you get to put a big underline under, or you get to put a star here on the end of this picture. You know, you've got to make it fun, or you've got to make it reinforcing, because it's harder for these children to remember to do routine things. Right, thank you, thank you. And what about sort of changing topics a little bit, kind of back to the classroom and assignments, um, how can you suggest uh, this sounds like it's coming from a school administrator. Um, how can you suggest to other teachers to sort of decrease those as those assessments and assignments for middle school students who have ADHD without um, singling out that child? Okay. Um, so we're talking about somebody talking to teachers, right? How do we tell teachers to... Right. Yes, correct. Okay, um, I remember a gifted child came home and said, um, I, I got an F on this assignment, and the parents said, why? And he said, because I just did 
one of the problems on this assignment. And he said, I figured that if I picked the hardest one, I could do all the others. So that was a very smart gifted child. And that's oftentimes a way to modify an assignment for a child that needs to, to do fewer because the additional ones are, are not helping that child grow in any way. Um, but you're, you're really talking about individual differences and how you help children to see that everyone gets a different kind of assignment. Some people get the hardest ones, some people get every fifth one, some people get all of them because they like to do a lot, some people get the three that are all random. I mean, you have to sort of say, there are differences among your children in this classroom. And some of you uh, get to have one break, some of you get to have more. Some of you I let be line leaders, some of you I have, and you just talk about individual differences of children, including the types of assignments that they have. There's no other way except to address individual differences and needs and benefits from these differences. Okay, thank you. We have a couple people who are asking if you could elaborate on your wait a day, what, what that means. Yeah, this is something you can do even as adults, of whom many of you may be the baby issue. And that is, if you, for example, get an emotional email that makes you think, oh, I'm just going to write this back and I'm going to say blah, 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 blah. Um, then you say, okay. I'm going to institute the way-to-day uh, philosophy, which is I'm not going to respond today. I'm going to respond tomorrow. I may put down a few notes here on my piece of paper, but I'm not going to respond today. So it's delaying action for a day. For younger children, it could be an hour. You might have to start with very young children for 10 minutes. Teach them to delay responding. Now, they might need something to do in that time period if it's a young child. Um, if you can wait for an hour before you do X, then you can put these blocks together while you're waiting. Or you can then read this little story to me while you're waiting. So you gradually build up a tolerance for delight. I remember B.F. Skinner uh, believed that you could teach children a tolerance for frustration in his idea was that you would take a lollipop and you would tie it on a string around a child's neck. And you would say, if you can wait all day, you can eat this lollipop at the end of the day. Well, that's teaching tolerance for frustration. For children with ADHD, they need tolerance for delay. They need certain rules that say, you must wait a certain amount of time for that particular activity. Then you do it, or let me help you do it. What about what is your opinion on classroom accommodations such as standing desks, fidget toys, or chair bouncy bands? Are they effective? I haven't done any research on those things, but uh, there is a lot of stimulation on those balloon balls. I've seen people using them. Um, they're novel. You can create movements. Um, so all of those techniques that work, as long as they don't uh, create a problem and children might need to learn, you can use this. Here are the rules for using this. You can use this as long as you obey these rules. So that is just, just fine. Again, most teachers and parents need to be scientists. Scientists say, this is an empirical question. Let's see what it does for this child or these children in this situation. Let's take notes. Or you can say specifically to the child, well, I'm not sure if this is going to help you. But what we'll do is we'll let you use this particular uh, activity and see if you perform as well as you did yesterday without it, or maybe you'll perform better. But just as long as you perform as well as yesterday, it's good. Okay? Okay, thank you. 
Um, what about, we, we actually get this question a lot as well, um, teachers or schools who use recess period as a time to make up incomplete work um, when research is supporting that ADHD children should not miss recess. So suggestions for, for handling that? Well, I think the issue there is incompleted work <laughs> um, and how to handle that. And that child obviously needs an accommodation. It, it's often true that teachers don't let children work on a computer until they've completed their work. They don't let them have research until they've completed their work. And those kinds of things don't seem to work. I mean, you know, teachers should be scientists. Does that work for that job? Does that get them to complete that work? And the answer is typically no, it doesn't. Um, so let's look at the work. Uh, again, it's the task. What, what is the task? What isn't the child completing? What is the child completing? How much is the child completing? Which types of problems is the child completing? So that's what I would do. I would look at the quality and the quantity of the work that the child is doing. Now, you could say things like, if yesterday you completed uh, five of these problems, if you can complete six problems today before recess, I will let you uh, pass out the papers for the next period. You can maybe gradually increase production, assuming that the quality of the work is good. Great, thank you. What about issues with rushing through completing tests and work? So yeah. are there suggestions to help students take more time to complete their tasks? <laughs> uh, uh, this is impulsivity. Um, and I think, again, part of it is because, well, there's a couple different reasons for that, but um, children, uh, want to do. They just want to do. Do, do, that's the most important thing is do. Get it done. How much can I produce? What can I produce? Uh, so we need to sort of move that goal back to uh, the quality of what you do, how much effort you put into what you do, how far along you get in what you do, um, not just in how much. Um, and maybe there's a way of breaking a task down into parts. So, uh, you know, after after they do 10, can they go back over those with a calculator to check the answers? Or after they've done three or four sentences, you know, is there some additional task in between the getting it done part that will allow them to improve the quality of what they have done. Um, so I'm not exactly sure what this specific parent or teacher is talking about in terms of getting done too fast. But I know that the child's goal is to produce, to get it done. And so we need to sort of move that into well, let's look at what you did. Which ones do you think you did that were the best? So moving it to a quality rather than a quantity. What if we make it a, a less of a long task? And and we look, make sure that your handwriting on this particular task is really good, so we're shorten it some. So you, you begin to figure out ways to improve the quality as, a, as an objective for the child and not just getting it done. Uh, again, what's confusing about this question is that sometimes children are trying to get things done because of anxiety. And children with learning disabilities are more likely to have anxiety than what I call task avoidance than our children without learning disabilities as a co-occurring condition to ADHD. So is it a task avoidance because of Difficulties, or is it just this goal of getting things done? I would, I would want that question answered so. myself. Thank you, and those are those are some really good points. Um, what about again back with impulsive children? What about impulsive children who get physical? And this doesn't get very specific, but I'm I'm 
assuming that that means, you know, maybe walking around, maybe touching other students, um, you know, maybe sort of just getting in the space of other students in the classroom. Do you have any interventions for, for what could help with that? Yeah, you're right. There's not a whole lot of information on that one <clears throat> because um, it, it could just be the child's attempt to initiate friendships. Uh, children with ADHD don't have difficulty initiating friendships. They have difficulty maintaining friendships. So they don't really know how to maintain a friendship of someone they're interested in. Or they may just try touching them, and that's their the more physical a more physical approach. Um, so they may need some direct instruction on how to initiate or how to maintain friendships in a classroom. Uh, they may need specific rules. Okay, before you touch anybody, you must ask their permission. They need to have a script, a little cue card. They need to practice things. Uh, do you mind if I touch you on the shoulder? Is that okay? Um, Gee, I really like what you just did. Can I just give you a high five? So they may need to start asking permission for touching, or they need, may need certain scripted um, ways of initiating and maintaining friendships with other children. We sort of have to see where they do that, how they do that, what the responses of the other children. Uh, they may need to learn how to watch the responses of the other children to be in touch. Again, that could be a selective inattention problem. They're not looking to see if the other child likes it or not. Uh, so, you know, um, reading social cues might be important there. It's hard to tell exactly. And I, I did have a follow-up with that, and they were also specifically asking about if they're frustrated and they hit or kick other students, so getting even more physical like that. Right. Okay. In, in my book, um, I have a whole chapter or a whole part of a chapter on what's called functional assessment. Again, we need to know what exactly the child is trying to get. Now, so say that again, Robin. What was the what was the problem, the specific problem behavior again? Yes, so there's hitting or kicking um, yeah. someone that they are frustrated with. Right. Okay. So what are, what are they frustrated about? What are they, what, what's happening here? Um, are they trying to get the other child's attention? Are they trying to get that other child out of the way as a competitor for adult attention? Are they, do, are they working on a specific task that is frustrating them in it, and so picking on another kid who's doing fine is a way of handling the frustration of the task. It needs to be analyzed. What task, what setting, what situation, who's involved? Because there is an answer there to that. If you know what a child is trying to get or avoid, all you have to do is help them get what they want or avoid what they don't want. And then you will not have the problem anymore. You might have to teach them specific skills, or you might have to start off by giving them what they want. Um, but before you start hypothesizing about all the possible reasons it might be, the specific situations need to be analyzed in functional assessment. And that's not difficult to do. It just means observation or interview uh, to find out what tasks, what situations find out get or avoid and what specifically the child's motivation. Great, thank you. And we're going to come to our last question. Um, so I saw a couple of questions about uh, students being very emotional and reacting to things um, very emotionally. We had one person give us a scenario where she said, her son gets in trouble with his friend during gym class because he keeps arguing that he's right in spite of the actual facts and he interprets things with self-serving bias. Um, so any any suggestions for, I guess, teaching or helping students um, regulate their emotions? Well, it's a really interesting thing that children with ADHD are more emotional. 
And it's it's not just about bad events or frustrating events in their life. They're also more emotional about good things in their life. I mean, one good thing will make a whole week. One bad thing will destroy a whole week. So it's an over-emotional response to a situation. Um, and, of course, if you get them to wait a period of time and come back and look at it, that helps. Uh, if you have that control, um, sometimes people have used a situation where they've taken and had the child write down the worst things in their lives and the best things in their lives and made little faces all the way around from worst to best and then had the children place this particular event on this hierarchy of best to worst or worst to best. And so that they begin to see things within a context of other events in their life. Now that takes a lot more parental control and maybe future control. But in the situation that we just described, um, I would say that that child has a high need to control. Need to control. Arguing is a controlling device. It's also a way of getting an emotional reaction from the other person. So if I were going to deal with that situation, I would want that child not to, I would not get into an arguing situation with that child as an adult, and I would uh, try to teach the other children that if he argues, walk away. Okay, so he's not getting anything in that situation. If the other child doesn't argue back or doesn't try to correct him, just walks away. So um, the need for control. You still need to address that. How to give this child more control, more choice, more feeling of being empowered. And that's, um, you'd have to know a little more about that child and, and that particular setting. It sounds like it's physical education. I think that's what you said, but I'm not sure. Um, but there are ways of being in control and being the big guy in that situation if we just have to. Great. Okay. Well, thank you, Dr. Zental, for all of your insights and suggestions today. I think that this was a very valuable webinar, and I want to thank all of our participants to joining us. Do have a quick reminder, we have a webinar on Monday um, at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. It's part two of a series we are doing on 504 plans. So the Department of Education released new information on 504 plans and the responsibilities of schools. So a lot of people who had questions today about that, um, you might find this webinar on Monday very helpful and get some of your additional questions answered there.